for September 25th, 2017. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 482. You mispronounced Masterpiece. is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out, talking together, just chewing over life and, and talking about our favorite movies, TV shows, music, things that we love to watch. But so much more we love them when uh, we watch them together. And uh, with I'm, I'm Matt Rather. With me this week are Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matthew. <laughs> and I'm very proper this week. Hello. Uh, the the uh, British, uh, the British Pete Fenzel, and uh, the Southern gentleman that is Mr. Mark Lee. Good to talk to you, Matthew. <laughs> well, uh, howdy. Um, so we're talking about Kingsman Two: The Golden Circle, uh, which is uh, a, f- a movie <laughs> that uh, <laughs> is, a masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it which is a movie that definitely exists. And, I, and at this point in the conversation, I'm willing to go for, as far to claim definitively that that this film exists and that it has been seen by uh, several people. I actually, did well. It was the number one movie in America this uh uh this weekend and and i think our our uh, not just for theatrical effect but i think our our opinions diverge i actually think we're at three polls um talk you know i i think we might triangulate a position as we uh as we talk about this movie i think we're in three separate places um but uh but let's uh let's jump into it pausing only to mention hey um i don't know if you've seen it yet but on the homepage of overthinking it we have our latest big video project up there uh it it began this project when we were in our chat room together talking as you know as we do uh and uh we we were talking about oh what was it that we were doing we were talking in the think tank about whether we have a moral obligation to read the news or not and uh pete said a short but pithy sentence that became so consequential pete you remember what the sentence was that you said right Oh gosh! Uh, something about the effect of uh, under what circumstances must anyone do anything? How exactly <laughs> did I say it? What, what you said? Uh, well, uh, it was teed off by by uh, Jordan Stokes, who said, "Pete, your moral life must be exhausting." <laughs> and. With uh, with just perfect Oscar Wildean wit, uh, like barely a you know barely a three dots animation as he typed in this uh, as he typed in this uh, answer. Pete wrote back and said, "Yeah, I've got more umbrage than Dolores." And it became ah, yes. clear it became clear to us that what the world needed was a '90s party rap where every verse was a reference to the Harry Potter franchise uh, of of novels and and films and. Over the course of the next hour or so, we proceeded to produce exactly that. It was uh, it was produced as a, a record. Our, our lyrics that we wrote collaboratively were produced as a recording available for for uh, download for members and and for purchase for for not overthinking it members and uh, by two of our own and then put into a music video by uh, our own Matt Belinky. And that video is on the homepage of overthinkingit.com. Go check it out there. It's uh, it's 
pretty damn good, if I do say so. I, you know, if I'm allowed to say that uh, about a project that I had some tangential hand in, I think I wrote maybe two lines of the rap. That's the the uh, the end of my con- contribution. So I think I am objective enough to say that this thing is awesome. It's uh, it's two minutes of your life that will delight you. And uh, hey, share it with all of your Harry Potter fan uh, friends out there, because I, I know you got them. They will be as delighted, and they will like you more. Your friends will like you more if you viral market for overthinking it. This uh, this video that that we produce that's on the homepage at overthinkingit.com. Check it out. Um, all right, let's dive into uh, let's dive into Kingsman. I look at the two in Kingsman two not necessarily as a kind of a geometric progression, but more as a kind of exponential progression. Uh, as Kingsman, <laughs> Kingsman to, squared to this Kingsman squared, and here's why uh, the. Um, the introductory film introduced a high class low class dichotomy um, and uh, this was this was Kingsman to the first or or two to the first, if you like, which is two squares in our uh, in our Venn diagram, two areas right and uh, and the second film sort of adds not just uh, not just another uh, area in the Venn diagram, but doubles them and it, it multiplies it raises it to the power of two uh, because it, we map onto the uh, two areas that we have uh, an additional uh, two areas the American sort of high class versus low class uh, divide and now we have we have a set of axes we have uh, orthogonal axes and we have four quadrants um, which is not to say that Kingsman 2 is a four quadrant movie it's it certainly isn't but but mark the um, you know what how do you think the film did with the dizzying increase in intellectual complexity that uh, that surely uh, came concomitantly with this uh, with this exponential um, increase in its thematic material oh how do I put this uh Bruv, it was a blatant mess. <laughs> I'm sorry, my, my British accent is awful, but uh, I had to Matt, throw... you, uh, Matt, Mark, you mispronounced masterpiece. It's masterpiece. <laughs> oh, okay, it's like an elevator, right? Yeah. That's how it works. Oh, I see. Right, right, right. Very good. Um, okay, where to start? Uh, as you can see, there's a difference of opinion here. I'm going to just try to succinctly state my... Uh, kind of central complaint about the movie, which doesn't even begin to surf it, the, uh, to to scratch the surface of all the issues that I had with it. Um, which, so here goes. The first movie, uh, you know, it had quite a lot going on with it as well. Most notably, the whole Samuel L. Jackson, Steve Jobs, cell phone, and head blowing up plot thing going on. Um, but at its core, as an emotional and thematic core, was the high class, low class divide, uh, which you know was interesting in and of itself. Had a very um, uh, uh, My Fair Lady kind of thing going on, but really served to uh, serve the mission of this being a bit of a parody, a spoof, uh, a deconstruction of the British spy movie, in particular James Bond. Um, it, it's been a while since I've seen this movie, but uh, through some video refreshers, I'm reminded that there are a lot of explicit references to James Bond movies and James Bond uh, in the first movie. Um, and Colin Firth's uh, poshness, his, his properness, his gentlemanly attitude, uh, he plays that part so well. And, um, uh, and Eggsy contrasts so well uh, with that, you know, with his, his, his swagger, with his 
with his accent, his low class uh, um, background and all those things. Um, and to see him go through that uh, character arc and that journey um, is both kind of effective and satisfying in and of itself, but also helps to um, uh, uh, both kind of highlight the silliness of the properness, and the gentleness of James Bond, but also make it seem awesome. And something actually to aspire to, you know, to have like amazingly well tailored suits and to be incredibly suave. Uh, you you uh, you want that thing, and you also uh, know how that's kind of ridiculous as well for a super spy to be like that. Um, with that having been dispensed of by and large, um, you get a, just a, a brief nod to it in this movie, but uh, it's sort of cultural uh, contrast, as you mentioned, Matt. Uh, really rests hard on this U.S. versus British divide, um, where after Kingsman is compromised in, in the U.K., um, they are forced to take refuge and ally with uh, statesmen, their American counterparts. And um, it, 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 I don't want to just say it just didn't work because this is overthinking it. We can't uh, just kind of leave it at that. Um, maybe I'll start with this. Like, you know, there were uh, Kingsman... And the tailor shop is meant to be um, really uh, uh, summarizing kind of like one particular aspect of British society, like its lens of class. Um, statesmen with the whiskey business and the folksiness and all the Western thematic elements and the, the cowboy stuff going on, I, I suppose, does capture you know a certain slice of the American um, ethos. Um, but it's not one that contrasts so naturally with. Um, the British proper gentleman piece. Uh, Matt, as you mentioned before, there is a little bit of a class dynamic going on. But I think what it ultimately comes down to is that these are not diametrically opposite, uh, opposing paradigms that we're used to seeing in pop culture. Um, and and unlike you know the the high class, low class, my fair lady thing going on in the first movie, um, and and we're 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 left with kind of like left. We had to do a lot of mental homework then to pit these two things against each other, and the movie just struggles to land that and make that connection. Matt, I have a the- that- uh, yeah, it does, and I have a theory about why why it gets into to so much trouble. It's that the idea of Americanness, and I think also the idea of Britishness. Um, are at this very moment like hotly contested right our sites of state least yeah yeah our sites of like real rancorous uh conflict as to what americanness means and you know and what britishness means and and the film doesn't the film wants to kind of lean on uh uh, well, it's I suppose it's question begging, right? It's it's uh, 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 petitio ad. Um, oh, Pete, do you know the? Do you remember the Latin name for that uh, fallacy? I don't know how to say electric lasso in Latin. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the the adjectives generally come second, so it would be lasso electricum or something like that. <laughs> but uh, you know, but the uh, right, it's it's uh, it's assuming the truth of the proposition that it ought to be that it ought to be proving, um, and that's uh, you, you, that's kind. Of, with that thematic material, with that kind of hole at the center of the thematic material, um, to me, it sort of doesn't uh, it doesn't work on on that 
level. I don't know. Pete, do you think that the film uh, develops a coherent theory of, of Britishness and or Americanness and places them into uh, productive tension in an opposition that uh, drives the film's thematic and uh, plot material? Oh, not at all. <laughs> uh, so, well, one thing you're both leaving out, which is is confusing to me, is it's pretty clear that the statesmen aren't the American paradigm. They're part of the American paradigm because the other American paradigm is poppy, which is the sort of globally exported, commodified notion of America. That uh, you have two ideas of America. It's a war between the commodified and the artisanal, between the sort of handcrafted and the mass-produced. Well, that that was are, true yeah. in the fir- that was true in the first film as well. Yeah. I, and so I would say that there is a kind of a globalist, a third globalist paradigm that was the the enemy in the first in Samuel L. Jackson and the cell phone thing and is is likewise the enemy in this in the second but but did you see it more as a, a war between types of Americanness well I thought that there was definitely an in, there was definitely a degree to which neither the statesman nor poppy were an adequate representative of America in a way that made me feel like the movie had drifted out of this national identity idea of culture. Uh, because First Kingsman, for me, was about class and culture, and class and culture versus class and birth, and this idea that you, if you can kind of adopt the cultural values that are associated with class, then you can achieve the advantages of the class in a way that is less sort of morally problematic, right? The, the things that are admirable about being classy uh, don't come from being born into wealth. They come from appreciating uh, the, that there are ways to do things that are better than other ways to do things, and notably that seems sort of more scaled appropriately to the good life and to the sort of practice of being an authentic person and valuing other people and valuing experience, being nice. These sorts of things are good. But but the second Kingsman movie is very, very different. And I, and I think if you guys were totally looking for a follow-up for the first Kingsman movie that operates on the same level, I am not shocked that you did not like this movie at all because I think it totally fails uh, in that respect. So I want to ask you a question, Matt Rather. I want to ask Matt Rather a question because I already know the answer from Mark Lee, which is, Matt, how is your Goethe? I mean, I'm down like seven pounds from my peak, and I'm... Uh, <laughs> Johann like, Wolfgang von Goethe, the German poet, uh, the famous German poet and playwright from the, uh, from the 17, late 1700s and early 1800s. The, uh, I, I, let me say this. Do you, is there any work of Goethe's that you've read and liked? Yeah, sure. And, and, I, and committed pieces of it to memory because that's yeah. just how I learn, how I learn poetry. Um, I can quote a little bit from a, a certain verse translation of Goethe's Faust. Right. Now, which part of Goethe's Faust? Oh, Faust Part 1, of course. Exactly. <laughs> okay, exactly. This is what I'm talking about. So, so... Wait, was part... that the wrong answer? Wait, did I... No, no, that's the right answer. That's the totally right answer, because nobody reads Faust Part 2. People only read Faust Part 1. They certainly and... don't, they certainly don't in, in high school and college. Probably in graduate school, someone is reading yeah. it. So, so, um, so, Mark, you're probably not as familiar, I would suspect, with uh, this particular sort of poetry. No, I am not. Uh, okay. <laughs> Please fill so, me in. So the German poet Goethe wrote a play, uh, a sort of verse, verse play, about the classic story of Faust, who is a scholar, scientist, smart dude, who makes a bargain with the devil through the demon Mephistopheles. Uh, various formulations of it involve him giving up his soul in exchange for infinite kind of riches or power or knowledge or 
whatever yeah. it is. And mm-hmm. then the Goethe variation yep. inc- includes this idea of if you ever experience a moment of such pure joy that you want to stay there forever, then uh, then you will die and go to hell. It's sort of this, this sort of whole thing. And the first part of, of Faust is about this bargain that Faust makes with Mephistopheles and about the tragic effect that it has on Faust's personal relationships. It's similar to the Christopher Marlowe, Dr. Faustus play. Although the Fa- Dr. Faustus play is a little bit more how we tend to popularly understand the traditional legend. Faust part two <laughs> is like three times as long <laughs> and crazy, <laughs> right? Uh, it's like they, there are like angels scattering rose petals and medi- meditations on the eternal feminine and the Virgin Mary. And like, and, 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 it, and there's like long passages of time and Faust is like pulling continents out of the ocean and stuff and all sorts of crazy stuff is happening. Uh, and it is like, I'm not going to say it's not coherent because I don't think coherence is really the goal necessarily, but it certainly diverges extremely far from anything related to the traditional story of what Faust is like. I mean, it uses Faust and the story of Faust, the relationship of Faust and Mephistopheles as kind of a starting off point, but it's a much more kind of, I would, I mean, psychedelic is kind of an inadequate word, but it's like a very broad and fat and and rich, but also kind of crazy uh, uh, exploration of a whole bunch of themes. So you're saying, Pete, essentially, that, that Kingsman 2 is a Faust 2 uh, solution to a Jurassic Park 2 problem. Well, here's what I would say. I would say Kingsman 2 is the best Faust Part 2 I've seen since Crank 2 High Voltage, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, Crank 2. So, you guys are familiar with Crank, right? Yeah, obviously. I mean, I've, like, I've, I've, committed certain, I've committed certain passages of it to memory because that's just how I well, learned which, oh, which great one, poems. Matt? Which one? Crank or Crank High Voltage? No, Crank, crank of course. Oh, exactly! The first one. <laughs> so the first Crank movie is about, and of course, I've like recommended Crank High Voltage in our holiday gift guides. So I am not surprised that this is something that maybe I like a little bit more than most people. But Crank is a movie, it's an action movie with a really fun premise. It's speed, but with a person. As in like, if this guy's heart rate drops before below a certain rate, he dies. He's injected with a strange poison. And if his heart rate goes down, his adrenaline goes down, then he's going to die. So he wants to find and get revenge on his kill. But to do it, he needs to constantly maintain a high heart rate. So he can't just, like, walk across town. He has to, like, car chase across town. He has to, like, run into fights for no reason. He has to, like, go have sex with his girlfriend in the middle of a very busy day. Like, like he has this additional constraint of what he's doing, which engages with the idea that what you're watching is an action movie in, like, a fun, self-referential, fourth-wall-breaking, crazy kind of way. And the movie more or less pulls it off. I would say Crank is a good, a good, fun movie to watch, uh, sort of like Kingsman with class, where it's like, okay, they're spies, they have to be in suits and they have to be classy and they have super fighting powers. But there's this sort of premise, there's a very high concept to this action movie that informs how the action sequences work and why they work, and it has to do with everybody wearing suits <laughs> and glasses. And um, Crank Two High Voltage <laughs> takes the same concept, sort of, and blows it out, wherein he gets his heart replaced by an, a mechanical heart, and he has to maintain a constant electric charge in order to stay alive. And so it's the same sort of idea, except that he has to do like much, much more absurd things that much more clearly strain the credulity of what is happening. Uh, and and like the movie has many more sort of flash forwards and fantasy sequences. There's sequences where you like 
pull out and you see like Godzilla style versions of the main characters fighting over like a tiny city. There's like flashbacks where you see the main character as a child on like Ricky Lake or like some sort of 90s TV show, which he was never on. There's like weird Broadway lights and it ends uh, sort of spoiler alert with the main character on fire, giving the middle finger to the audience. And, uh, and I love this movie. I absolutely love this movie because it takes this sort of concept that's been explored in the first movie and it just it, it sort of dispenses with the idea that it needs to maintain the coherence and structure of a traditional action movie to a little bit of a greater degree because it assumes that when you've gotten to this point in the relationship with the franchise you're sort of willing to entertain a lot more nonsense and you've sort of self-selected you're sort of self-selected that this is a movie that you're okay with watching and in that case it has more license to more broadly explore form theme uh symbol uh, in, in a sort of more high-flying and crazy sort of way than the first story, which is much tighter. And I felt like Kingsman 2 is like this for Kingsman 1, wherein Kingsman 1 is... Um, and, and I guess I would also introduce a second axis, which is, for me, the first Kingsman movie, yes, it's about Britishness, but it's not just about Br- Britishness, Englishness, as it were, versus like sort of English high-classness versus English low-classness. There's that statement of purpose in the movie, uh, manners maketh the man. And that both Kingsman 1 and Kingsman 2 are explorations of this statement, manners maketh the man. And Kingsman 1 does it through like social, like, oh, you have to wear the right clothes, and you have to act the right way, and you have to sort of act classy, and you have to show the right sort of values. And this has all sorts of relationships with with money and family, which are not always comfortable, uh, and it doesn't necessarily always come down on the side of it that is most comfortable. Uh, but but Kingsman two, <laughs> Kingsman two, the very one of the very first things that the movie does is pick up a human being and stick his head into a meat grinder and turn his brain into a hamburger, right? Uh, and I love this. I love this moment. And and so this raises a whole new question, right? Manners maketh the man. <laughs> well, but what maketh is- the hamburger, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Up exactly. top. Like, is that hamburger made out of manners? No, that hamburger is made out of meat. Meat maketh the man. <laughs> I wish someone had said that at some point. That that And there's another, there's like a companion scene to it, right? On one hand, there's the scene where we see a human being ground up into a hamburger and another human being forced to eat him, which is the sort of commodification of the person, like a person is the sum of their physical parts. This is Snowden's secret from Catch-22. A person is meat. Men are meat. Jamie Lannister says this too. It's a, horrify, it's a horrifying realization that comes in war that human beings are just meat. But that's not what the Kingsmen think. The Kingsmen think it's important that you carry an umbrella and hold it in a certain way and drink in a certain way. Um, the other scene to complement this is the scene in the, in the, in the Kentucky bar where Eggy, Iggy is is uh, Eggsy is drinking and he asks for a martini and he gets a crappy tumbler of, of old whiskey or something not even old just like skunky whiskey he doesn't like cheap whiskey and he uh, he drinks the whiskey sees the whiskey like is, this is a, a slow gin martini he's like in Kentucky it's a martini and so he drinks it and then he asks for another martini and then he has the realization about the dog and he thanks the bartender for the best martini he's ever had. And so the question is, what made that a martini? Did, did, did the meat make the martini? Is it because of the, the substance of it, the physical substance of the drink? Of course not. The drink is not physically made out of gin and vermouth. Or as Colin first says in the first King, uh, Kingsman, like gin and then like opening and closing a vermouth bottle without really pouring anything into the martini. Um, no, the martini is made out of whiskey. 
but manners make it the man, right? Discourse, construction, right? Uh, it, it's about discursive phenomena. The martini exists in the sort of role of a martini. It provides the purpose of a martini. It does the thing that a martini does. And it has this sort of classy relationship with uh, Eggsy's experience that transforms it into a martini, even though it is made out of, you know, uh, whiskey stuff. It's made out of that kind of grain rather than the kind of grain that's in a martini. And then when you combine that with the fact that not only is the first scene, or not the first scene, but one of the first scenes about a man's brain being ground up in a hamburger, but do you have multiple people over the course of the movie who suffer from severe brain damage as their brain is made into hamburger? And we have to confront the, the limitations of the physical brain versus the construction of the mind as a discursive phenomenon? Right? Like, oh, okay. So this is about manners maketh the man in the sense of the things that you do, the way that you do them, the way you construct uh, yourself, the, the sort of... Uh, the textual phenomena, the syntactic phenomena, the the way that you live in the world, this is more of who you are. It's existential. This is the, the, this is more of who you are than the fact that you are made out of meat. Sure. This and the the I mean the main thing that I would connect this to else what elsewhere in the movie is the discourse around the value of the lives of drug addicts. Right. Yes, exactly. And that's what that's what and it's more gestured at. I mean, the movie does I think ultimately endorse what would be for us a comfortable place, which is that like. They're human beings, and we need to take their interests into consideration, right? Like, if if we had a treatment that cured everybody, then this would be something that we should do. We should try to treat people, treat it like a disease, rather than like a crime, right? Yeah, right. So, but this this does seem to be like is is drug use manners or is drug use meat, right? Um, Uh Ah. That's a good question. And that's, that's, you know, the, the idea is the idea of the villains in the movie, uh, both Poppy, well, Poppy's a little different. Um, the president and electric lasso, uh, you know, uh, electric lasso cowboy. I I forget what was his, Oh, was he whiskey? I forget the names of the, the people. Um, tequila was in a coma. Um, wasted for for most Such of the movie. Tragedy. Yeah. Such a tragedy, by the way. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, he, so Channing Tatum starts to dance amazingly, and then they put him away for the rest of the movie. Yep. Ugh. Well, I mean, after Sorry, that... I'm interrupting. A little, you know what, a little bit. Uh, let me quote from Goethe's Faust. <laughs> Please. Uh, Faust at one point says, Let my pleasures overtake me. If they get a little strong, let me lie and do not wake me. I've been on my feet too long. And uh, and Channing Tatum has danced enough for uh, any of us <laughs> in one man's lifetime. And I think we, we owe the man a, uh, a cryo nap. But, uh, but the, the, the point of view of the, the villains, and this is the bad point of view, is that the drug addicts are worthless. They've done something bad. It, uh, they are disqualified by virtue of the bad thing that they've done from uh, rescue or help. You know, um, we should just cage them up in the sports stadiums, let them all uh, uh, let them all what bleed out or or whatever. Like stage three was like your brain explodes or something like that. And um, and do that. And the good point of view, the, the point of view that the movie endorses is, no, these are people no matter what they've done. They are people. Uh, and and this this seems to be. This seems to be a counterexample to what we're talking about, right? Because in at least the way the way it's put, the movie doesn't engage with the discourse of like drug addiction, you know, with like a specific biological brain, you know, d- 
disruption of the mesolimbic dopamine reuptake pathways or whatever the current state of that research is where the kind of the learning uh the kind of learning centers of the brain are hijacked by drugs of abuse by drugs of addiction um to create this cycle of use and use and use and use and use and then certain psychological and certain social things reinforce that and it becomes a whole you know enormous social problem that we still don't have a good solution to though research seems to indicate that there are a couple that would be better than the solutions that we are currently pursuing but the oh, you um, mean the ones in the movie where they try to cage everybody up which is i guess what they're doing in real life too in a lot of it yeah no, right i mean well, but, yeah but but um but so what what gets um, uh, what gets talked about then is recreational drug use, right? Um, kind of experimentation uh, and and the the assistant to the president who – or is that the vice president? I, I mean I'm not quite sure that none of those characters are really developed. But the, the woman is like, you, you, you work us for 20-hour days. Like how do you think we get – how do you think we get through it without a little <laughs> – you know, like uh, that's how. Uh, like that's, that's not how... just any woman, by the way. That's Emily Watson, right? That uh, was it, Emily Watson, or does it just look like Emily Watson? Is it? Uh, it it may have been. I, the character was yeah. so underdeveloped that I barely may have had a uh, you know like one of those um, uh, pixelated disruptions over her over her face. I don't know who she was supposed to be. I don't know, but there there are a lot of like really good actors, uh, certainly wasted in in this film. And you, you <laughs> gotta you gotta wonder if they're trying to set up the trying to set up the franchise. So recreational drug use, right? Is this uh, is this meat or is this manners, right? And I would say that it's manners. And in in the uh, the kind of the universe of the Kingsman, bad manners should be punished. You know, um, that's the whole point of the manners make the man scene in Kingsman one, and sort of the point of the the manners make it the man scene in in uh, Kingsman two. That like if you are not gracious, if you are not hospitable, if you are not uh, courteous, right? You you should have a uh someone should umbrella chuck a uh beer stein at your face or or you know you know shoot you with an umbrella um uh, i thought i thought the scene the purpose of the scene in the second movie was a little different but yeah. go on I yeah, can yeah. Fill this, in later well, it, mostly but the the whole you know i don't know the the so the the thing the thing is like if if these people uh, these people right like if drug users as a class are guilty of bad manners um, shouldn't they get a beer stein checked at their checked at their face? Uh, or is this is this does this not obtain because because one of two things: one, uh, drug use isn't bad in the uh, in the sort of moral universe of Kingsman Two, or um, it's a more existential question, right? And like to say that someone has done something ill-advised, uh, you know, and and or and even antisocial is not the same as saying that they should be uh, caged up in sports stadiums and and allowed to allowed to have their brains explode. Right. I think that this is a good question, and it's a question that's pretty difficult to hash out as long as the golden circle exists. And the golden circle is the relationship, the profiting relationship between illegal drugs, 
legal drugs and pharmaceuticals and governments and consumer populations. Because the movie does address uh, the sort of contemporary addiction crisis in a pretty major way in that it has a Harvard Business School graduate named Poppy attempting to market narcotics as pharmaceuticals for strictly profit-oriented purposes uh, worldwide and sort of demanding by virtue of the power and profitability of this business that it be allowed to function without obstruction in such a way that – literally in this case of this movie paralyzes people but as you have mentioned also has like a pretty desperate effect on people in real life so you have this movie is about oxycontin and and vicodin and like narco and like yeah sure opiates yeah yeah exactly yeah and so it's like opioids as opposed to opiates it's about both it's about both opiates and opioids it's about poppy wanting to go from being an opiate producer to an opioid producer (laughs) that's her plan is that she wants to go from making illegal drugs to making legal drugs and a lot of people probably chafed at this scene because well partially because the movie focuses on marijuana probably because it's easier and like like less repulsive to then to focus on a lot of like this movie would get probably too real if it focused a lot on like actual painkillers and heroin and instead of like people hitting bongs because that that sort of raises the stakes in a way that makes the movie less fun and the movie kind of has to tell the truth slant a little bit but it does sort of seem like it's about um like the effects that it has on people seem to follow the arc of narcotic addiction like opiate narcotic addiction where you know you sort of like first you get sort of become kind of an outcast and something happens to you and it feels like you don't fit in with society and your fa- your family looks at you weird then you start like acting really weird and your social behavior suffers then you become catatonic and then you die and uh and it's like it's not a beat for beat but it's like to me that's that spoke to like the golden circle is the villain because they are trying to set up the cycle of addiction as a profiteering mechanism because they see people as meat and they see the cycle of addiction as as a way of exploiting people. I mean, they prefer robots to people anyway because at least they know how to take orders, and they were they prefer replacing people with robots. So the there is a discontinuity in the movie between the recreational drug users and then the sort of cycle of addiction, which is mostly blamed on pharmaceutical companies and drug dealers and and the government's failure to do anything about it out of it. Because of their incredible cruelty and lack of compassion, but yeah, there is no like like is a. I'd say that the movie does condemn recreational drug use, but not um, and and not alcohol enough. Like it sort of like poo-poo's it and says both of them are like kind of bad and you probably shouldn't do them, but doesn't say that you need to be like electrolassoed in half or like fed into a wood chipper because you because you smoke pot, right? Well, sure, it, like like yeah. like a lot of like a lot of. Um popular films that try to to play in the the social commentary space right like it it's more a provocative articulation of a problem than it is a a kind of a uh you know um coherent program of of solutions uh you know kingsman and statesman are not you know are are just bad solutions are just bad policy anyway right like non-state actors powerful non-state actors with with you know uh non-democratic governance and their own their own agendas uh which can't be voted on by the citizens of the countries they purport to serve are not are not the answer <laughs> to yeah. to uh to the the problems that that plague us so like we're already we're already in that we're already in kind of a uh wish fulfillment type representational representational uh space but i'm very taken with your with your um description of the golden circle as being it's almost like it's almost a parody of i mean by by sort of pushing it to absurd uh to absurd lengths the the underlying um 
kind of sickness, the underlying moral bankruptcy of the system is revealed. But it's almost a, a uh, it's almost a, a model for any major you know business whether it's whether it's soft drinks or mm-hmm. or McDonald's or fast food food generally right like um uh that you know there's a sort of you want to you want to create a set of of fanatical product users right and and then and and there's also there's also a weird class divide not weird um there there's one weird class divide there is a uh, a class divide in it where there are the people kind of pulling the levers they're machine operators and then they're they're the machine um you know sort of victims right like not just the people who get their 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 uh heads ground up into hamburger but the the people who get sort of trapped into a cycle of uh who get trapped into to a cycle of um uh, self-medication, right, and false consciousness, which is, I think, what what this is a, a metaphor for. Uh, yeah. While they are automated out of their dignity, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, while the the benefits of that, you know, cyclical degradation flow into the the pockets of a few. Um, yeah. And and as such, I'm taken with with your your description because I think it's a provocative. Um, kind of portrait of late capitalism and uh and one that's not to me that's not cashed out in a satisfying way by the movie because the other elements don't necessarily have the same kind of rigor or there's no there's no rigor there's a lot of loose ends i I agree with mark in that like there's a lot of loose ends like the those are the scene the the manners make the man manners make it the man scene in the bar where they fight the cowboys who i think are with the statesmen because one of them is called moonshine whose job it is to be like a horrible homophobe and totally incompetent i didn't read him as being as part of statesman I, I read that as a continuation from the scene in the first kingsman movie where uh like the the redneck baptist church like the westboro baptist church in kentucky is full of the like, horrible caricatures of the worst elements yeah. of american society and like these are people that just basically deserve to die that's I, that's I, how i read I, that i mean i because because Pedro Pascal calls the guy Moonshine, which led because they all have nicknames uh, based on booze that kind of reflect their personality. Right. Where, where, but uh, so I felt like, but I felt like this is a great example of like I don't need, I don't feel like I want to or need to defend this scene in terms of the context or credibility of the premise because the 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 situation where this fight happens is stupid, <laughs> right? Like there's it is it is incoherent. We're we're on some sort of quasi government institutional highly trained base, or are we in a bar? It's not clear. Why is this this guy calling this person a horrible homophobic slur i don't know like why is he so mad why doesn't he just let the guy leave why does he pick now to get angry you know and the guy is also like 60 years old why are you like yelling at him in public um and and why are you calling somebody these things it, it doesn't make sense but that sort of like the purpose of the scene i felt like was to contrast because it's leading you to think that it's going to be like the first the scene in the first Kingsman, which is about sort of boorish people losing out to classy people and and sort of people that being sort of having certain manners gives you power and gives you control and gives you self control and self mastery, which then you can use to project to confound other people who would try to assert authority over you in kind of a violent or pseudo violent way. But in this one, it looks like it's going to go that way. But what it turns out it is that manners maketh the man is like. A sort of horrifying statement about the physical limits of the discursive human self, which is that like Colin Firth 
can't be Galahad. He can't be Harry if he can't do what Harry does. Manners maketh the man. If you can, if you've aged out or you've gotten hurt so that you can't do the things that you used to do, you stop being yourself. And that's horrifying. And to the extent that I'm not saying the movie advocates for that, but it presents that as one of the sort of scary, scary situations. And I think that's one of the roles drug use plays, too, in that that if you take drugs, it does sort of diminish your ability to be yourself. And that's and do the things that you do. And that's bad because manners in this movie is less about behaving properly and more about discursively existing as a phenomenon independent of your physical meat self. Um which he's incapable of doing because the butterflies are in his head. And the butterflies are sort of the limitations of the physical problems in his brain. Um, and, and this is supposed to be scary. But yeah, the whole idea of it being a cowboy fight makes no damn sense. And so, and so I agree with Mark in that that's like incoherent. Um, but but I liked it because I appreciated it, like the switcheroo and how they did it um, and, and all that sort of thing. I thought it was good. Uh, this actually yeah. is a good opportunity to talk about Elton John. We should talk about Elton John. Oh, let's. Yes. <laughs> so, so. Yeah. Little said- little Rocket Man is cruising for. Oh, sorry. Not not. Sorry. Different Rocket Man. <laughs> well, OK. No, that, so. that's our tragic reality. Not um, not the tra- I, not the, not the tragic love, fiction of this. I, I love Elton John in this movie. It's amazing. And I'll tell you why. Please. Uh, so because I thought it was pretty random and also incoherent. Uh, but go yeah. on. So one of the things that you hear a lot in critiques of American culture is people talking about the 50s. The 50s were like this. These people think the 50s were good. These people think the 50s were bad. The 50s were great if you were white. They were terrible if you were black because you were living under Jim Crow and it was wretched. You couldn't go swimming like, you know, as a human being with without being hassled, this kind of stuff. And what often gets left by the wayside in this discussion is that the 50s that we were talking about are not the actual 50s. Well, that doesn't get left by the wayside. It usually gets brought up and then it's kind of lampshaded and that nobody is talking about the actual 50s. People are talking about various sorts of simulacra of the 50s, memories of the 50s, rewritings of the 50s. It was only 10 years, if that. And it's taken on this huge cultural cachet as if it this sort of this this sort of crystal of a human existence only happened within you know 1949 and 1951 or 1961 right like 1960 um, and it's great that Julianne Moore in this movie that Poppy she doesn't like the 50s she doesn't like the 50s she likes happy days <laughs> she likes Greece she likes the simulacrum of the 50s and she comes out and says it in that really forced monologue at the beginning of the movie that betrays that the movie is probably going to have plotting problems because it's like <laughs> we need to give you a whole bunch of character information during this outer space zoom in scene because we can't figure out a better way to do it but we know it's going to be worth it later uh, and she talks about how she likes the simulacra which which makes sense liking happy days is sort of like liking robots now again happy days is not that bad but again but like follow it through if the thing you like about happy days is the idea of the 50s that's put forward in the happy days and not just sort of like how it's used to tell a fun sitcom no like the the actual like i want to live in the bar where the Fonz hits the jukebox that is like my ideal for human existence which i don't think is what happy days is doing let's give ron howard and company a little more credit than that but if that's your idea of what the 50s are the simulacrum who is elton john to you is the question right Elton John, Elton John is the guy on classic rock radio. Elton John is the guy who sang, you know, Rocket Man and, and Benny and the Jets. And, they, oh, he's great. He's this retro piano player. He's got a lot of pizzazz, you know. Oh, yeah. you know, he's pretty more, more specific to this movie uh, in the 50s scene, Crocodile Rock, right, which yeah. is uh, what a, a rock pop song from the 70s that similarly uh, evokes the simulacrum uh, of the 50s in that style of music, right? Yeah. And, and it's like it's it's a reference very it's name checked in the movie very briefly, but he doesn't actually play it, 
which I thought was uh, notable, at least, if nothing else. No, he plays, he plays Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting because it has the word fight in it. <laughs> but but here's the thing. Oh, and also, Billy Joel falls under the same category. And, and I know they went on that big tour together where they played piano together. But Billy Joel is also a piano player from like the 70s and 80s who is calling back to the simulacrum of the 50s. Although Billy Joel and Elton John are coming at it with sort of different relationships with camp. <laughs> Slightly. <laughs> Slightly. Ever so, ever so slightly, yeah, yeah. Because who is? Because the thing is that Poppy likes the simulacrum of Elton John. She likes the classic rock Elton John. She likes Crocodile Rock. She doesn't like real Elton John, who is like decked out from head to toe in feathers and and high heeled boots and spangles, and who says bitch all the time and jump kicks people. Right? Like like real Elton John is a bad mamma jamma. Real Elton John is a problem. Real Elton John is not this sort of idyllic Richie Cunningham idea of what Crocodile Rock ought to be. The real Elton John, and I may say real Elton John, because what is real, what I mean is the sort of the experience of Elton John in the context of the way he lives his life and, and his own sort of subjective idea of himself, him in the flesh, right? But again, not just the flesh, not just the meat, not just the commodified aspect of Elton John, but like the, the sort of performance and the living of his life as opposed to the way that he's commodified in, in, uh, in classic rock radio. And so, like, Poppy thinks that she can control and harness the, the Elton John from the radio, but ends up with the Elton John from the stage show who wants to have anal sex with Colin Firth because, you know, can you blame him? Uh, <laughs> actually, do you guys – I like that callback. Did you appreciate Because I thought the first – in the first – we should talk about this because – and actually – Oh, yeah. I, oh, there's, there's definitely places to go with this g- given what happens at the music festival in, in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. So to step, so again, I just but say let's, like, but I, let's let's just take a moment to yeah. you know uh, to like really appreciate the kind of the slash fictional opportunities of uh, <laughs> of like a, a Colin Firth Elton John pairing, uh, and like just the the awesome uh, and and just truly sexy fan art of all sorts that could flow from that. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on. Mm, the, the backstage pass with two backs. <laughs> Telling each other that they love each other in Portuguese. Uh, um, uh, oh, man. It's meeting at the Moors. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's that, uh, I guess, yeah, just to cash out the Elton John thing, I love that when Pop. That's not all playing- Saturday nights, all right, for. <laughs> well, that's, well, there you go. Right? Because when he's talking that Saturday nights, all right, for fighting, is, is he really talking about punching each other you know like is that what elton john's really talking about is he really talking about gangs and hitting and people punching people like really i mean maybe but my my sense was that when elton john is talking about like men meeting in the streets to duke it out he's like talking about kind of sexual uh sexual war as well Uh, i get and that's part of his relationship with camp i guess right like in the sense that I don't really believe that Billy Joel is really speaking to like the economic troubles of fishermen or to, or of Allentown, Pennsylvania, that there's sort of an aspect of masculine exploration that's happening in this general paradigm, this like dueling piano oeuvre of retro 80s piano. It has this relationship with masculinity that's like kind of campy and homoerotic. And, um, and kinda, so, kind of? I don't even say, like <laughs> extraordinarily campy and, <laughs> and homoerotic. And I don't think, and I think that it's worth acknowledging that that's a thing that happened and that it's part of this movie. But at any rate, 
If you're still listening to this podcast and haven't seen any of the Kingsman movies, congratulations. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, but the end of the first Kingsman movie, and I'll punch it, push it to you guys. I'll let go of the, of the reins in just a hot second. The end of the first Kingsman movie is very uncomfortable, and I don't like it uh, because it ends with a joke about – uh, Eggsy having anal sex with the Princess of Sweden, which I felt like was unearned and gross and not appropriate. Uh, but then again, this movie made probably for like 16-year-old boys and not for me. So like, I guess they'll laugh at it more than I did. It just seems a little bit more crass, even misogynistic uh, than the rest of the movie generally was, and seems to st- and, and the movie seems to sort of like step in the bucket a whole bunch of times with these sort of. Uh, expressions of real extreme crassness in a movie that's about manners and that doesn't really fit. But, and again, all my talk about things that don't really fit, things that are really uncomfortable, let's just leave that by the wayside in the back of our Volkswagen, and move on to this movie, which decides to double down in several ways on this sort of, like, really invasive orifice exploration of the first Kingsman. Uh, Take it away, Matt and Mark! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... You are clearly, Pete, referring to the scene where they go to the Glastonbury Music Festival (laughs) and they have to implant an eavesdropping and surveillance device into an attractive woman's vagina. Why do you say it like that, Mark? (laughs) Yeah, God, it almost sounds sounds a little sexist when you bring it up. When you say it like that, it's almost like you describe what happened in the movie. And this is the part of the movie okay. can't bend. Okay. Before we dive into this, because I don't, I don't want this to go without mention, is that they go to Glastonbury and they don't interact with sort of this fundamental nature of a music festival at all, right? Elton John is in this movie and he romps around and you know his music is used to effect and uh, to, to great effect later on. But you hear like you know uh, anonymous band uh, playing faintly in the background and you don't get to meet any musicians and it's not you know none of that's referenced. It seems like a huge wasted opportunity there. Um, that aside though, let's talk about the uh, the, the the not rape the because it was consensual. It was okay. It was very uncomfortable, is what it was, um, because you're confronted with this notion of well, I guess uh, they <laughs> that's could have what just- she never mind. Oh, uh, she didn't say that, actually. She's like she was enjoying it uh, again. Also, this makes it uh, okay. oh, this is so icky uh, because it's presented with this notion of like, oh, we could put this thing. Uh, you know, it has to go through a mucous membrane. And it's like, what are you going to do? Stick it in her nose? And like, nope, let's stick it in the other place where there's uh, where there's a mucous membrane, which is the vagina. Um, and it, it, the whole thing is meant to be read at the end is that, well, aren't they such gentlemen because they made it consensual? And oh, isn't he such a gentleman because uh, he only got the third base and and didn't actually cheat on his uh, soon-to-be fiancé and, and future bride. Um, the Yeah, to Pete's point, right, this is all sort of like uh, exploring this you know, area of crassness, uh, in which does not really square up well with the movie that play, seems to place so much emphasis on manner. So it was just instinctually very uncomfortable. I, I have to assume intentionally so, um, but I, I just feel like there could have been a way to to score some sort of uncomfortable points. I don't know, or, or just like give give the audience their sexy sexy time in a way that just didn't feel so icky. Okay, so this Matt, movie is that? this movie is rated R, right? Yes. And yes. Kingsman One was rated R, which mm-hmm. means that they're made for fourteen year old boys, <laughs> right? And I feel like. We've actually matured. That, that's what that's what the R stands for, by the way. Really made for fourteen year old boys. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we've matured in in a certain extent, uh, to a certain extent, from Kingsman: The Secret Service to Kingsman: The Golden Circle. Uh, 
Because of the circle that we're that that's under consideration, right? Like we've graduated from like butt jokes and poop jokes and stuff to uh, to vagina jokes, and that at least is like in a Freudian sense, that's an advancement, right? right exactly. Like in terms of oh. the developmental stages <laughs> that the preoccupations with those orifices represent, then we're at what like a four year old or a three year old. <laughs> Jesus. No, we've gone we've gone out of you know late we're we've gone from being like post edible like latency children to being uh early adolescent. Uh okay. early adolescent children, right? Like like sort of fascinated with, captivated by um and the, you know, this is all heterosexual, psychosexual development from the, the point of view of adolescent boys, but you know, I, we're talking about we're talking about uh, uh, commercial movies, so what isn't? Um, the uh, you know we're we're preoccupied with, fascinated by the particular golden circle of the of the vagina, but uh, don't quite know what use we would have for it uh and and uh both kingsman and kingsman squared don't seem to have a lot of use for women uh in general right it's it's mostly um you know, Poppy isn't really available as a, uh, I won't even say a sexual object, as like a, as a mature woman uh, who would be somebody's, who would be somebody's partner, right? Like the, the, um, the, her sort of gender, her like over the top gender presentation is, uh, is more a part of the is more a part of the attitude towards campiness or the attitude towards nostalgia than it is towards anything that might have to do with like social interaction between people. Um, this movie, yeah. the, the Kingsman has like strong female characters in the sense that it puts women in who have power, but not women who have backgrounds. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, and it's it's we all find it as sickening as Pete does. Uh, you know, sorry. which is I'm so, I'm sorry. Sexism had... just makes me want to throw up. I'm sorry. <laughs> and the uh, right uh, and uh, also the the counterpart female agent taxi is um, uh, the counterpart female agent is uh, th- uh, blown up really Lancelot, early. Right? Yeah. yeah, Lancelot really. Uh, no, not Lancelot. Uh, oh, yeah, no, Lancelot, right. Uh, really early in this movie, um, she's blown up. Uh, Halle Berry is there, uh, and she's, you know... And, by the way, uh, Halle Berry, one of the most beautiful women in existence, right? Like, celebrated for being uh, not just an Oscar-winning actor, but also uh, very great to look at. Not... not uh, there's no, there's no like exploitation of Halle Berry's good looks, which, which is how you can tell that this is not right. This, this movie has not even attained like Fast and the Furious franchise level of, of psychosexual development, you know. Um, and so the, the, I mean, there's, there's almost like a, there's almost like a, a seven minutes in heaven quality or a, like a spin the bottle quality, right? A like early fumbling, unsatisfying, you know, pretty gross, uh, sexual exploration, uh, quality to, to the scene at the, um, at the music festival, which, which includes a like not, not the shot that we get in in at the end of Kingsman One, which is a point of view shot from 
uh, Eggsy's point of view uh, as he as he you know prepares to copulate with the the princess of Sweden. But the um, uh, but the non the kind of the cam- the independent camera upskirt like bikini crotch your underwear crotch shot of uh uh of the the woman who is the target of 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 this this operation and it's so unsexy it's so like uh it's so almost anatomical it's so almost clinical in its uh in its anatomical um precision uh i'm not sure that i've ever seen that particular shot in any in any mainstream hollywood movie before you'd have to go i haven't seen that particular you know entry point angle shot but it does remind me of um that old disney world attraction body wars you know kind of like (laughs) kind of like kind of like star tours except you're just you know going through the various vessels of the body yeah inner space yeah i think that that's i think that that movie is i think that that attraction is gone by the way i think that like um uh, the whole health pavilion in Epcot has been shut down, which you know is a, is a, a tragic, uh, a tragic loss. Because I really liked the improv show uh, that they had in the health pavilion, the anacomical players, and. Uh, <laughs> I, I definitely sat through a couple of those when I, when when I was a kid and that like, so, you know, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's totally uncomfortable, but I think it speaks, I think it speaks not to, uh, a, um, well, I, in world, I think it speaks not to a program of, uh, misogyny and sexism, though certainly the, the industry and the social conditions that, that, uh, produce the movie are, complicit in a in a program of misogyny and sexism on a you know social level but um i i think it sort of speaks to a, a kind of immaturity uh in the the film's capacity for its imaginative capacity and the the sorts of preoccupations that uh it or that it cynically imagines its audience is um is uh, uh, concerned with, right? Because wouldn't one of the wish fulfillment things of being a James Bond-like spy be uh, sleeping with beautiful women? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that per se in terms of if you accept that, like, you know, these wish fulfillment power fantasies are things that movies do for us and that, like, uh, uh, that we're not, you know, terrible people for for enjoying them. I mean, certainly we enjoy blowing things up enough in movies, right? And and uh, But that's that's not what... But that's not what's that's not what's going on here at all. It's um, I don't know. It's per, it's perplexing. It was, it was puzzling to put Eggsy into a committed romantic relationship at the beginning of the movie, like practically to deprive us of that wish fulfillment, fulfillment fantasy, uh, or, or just to set up the recurring anal sex joke. Like that's why they brought her back in. That's the best explanation that I you know, have. The, re- the recurring anal sex joke is with Elton John. Yeah, with that's. What, I mean, yeah. it, well, Which it I started. Appreciated. It started carried over from the from the first one with her, and then recurred. Uh, she brought it back up as well too, and so you know, and then and then Elton John picked up the torch, uh, right. such as it were. Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's it's just it's very juvenile. It's is what it is to me. I, I kind of can write it off at a certain extent because it just feels very juvenile and just not very well formed. Uh, but it but it does to it does interact with some of the other dynamics that are in play across these movies. A lot of it being the relationship between kind of base 
uh, physical instinct versus sort of conscious thought and action. Uh, and and also this idea that people do make mistakes and do bad things and that the Kingsmen are not about being perfect, which I think is an important distinction that gets a little bit lost, which is, you know, the uh, the Kingsmen like when when the king, the thing that makes Harry remember that he's Harry is that he was willing to shoot Mr. Pickles. Right. Like like the the memory of that is what brings him back to yeah, the senses. Un- un- yeah, but the, that's, that's I, the that's the dog, by the way, for those who haven't seen the first. But for the yeah. the um the yeah exactly, and and it's not like I don't know, it's it's the the whole unsullied thing. Like at least George R. R. Martin carries the the horror of that uh, type of training and indoctrination to its logical conclusion, right? And it's it's not the sort of unsullied training of the Kingsmen is is one of those things that's like, what is that doing there? It's a level of it's a level of psychological horror that seems out of place with uh, uh, seems out of place with the prevail- prevailing tone of the movie. Yeah, it's definitely there in, in to resist full endorsement of the Kingsmen, what they are, what they stand for, and what they're doing, which the first Kingsman movie catches out by making them in league with the bad guys. Because, like, the Kingsman organization is headed up by a bad, by a, a, a traitorous villain in the first movie. So the Kingsman organization does not have clean hands in all this. And, and it follows sort of Eggsy's journey as he sees the good and the bad of these different sorts of ways of living and tries to sort of figure out who he is. And yeah, it comes down pretty strongly in favor of the Kingsman way of doing things, but there are moments in which the Kingsmen are like, this is maybe not the right place to spend your time. There may be bad people. Uh, well, right. That, that like, be- yeah. I mean, if you think of Kingsman as not as, as being something that, that anyone can participate in, like as, you know, if you think of class as being something that anyone can, can participate in, uh, by having good manners, you know, by being courteous, by being hospitable, by being generous and, and, uh, uh, all these good things like the, I mean, courteous, be, you know, deriving from the word for court, right? Like by, by behaving like courtiers, um, that like, then, you know, Kingsmanness is good. But if you think of Kingsman as a, you know, as an unelected private security force, uh, then, then maybe it's bad because, you know, it's susceptible to, to corruption in the ways that the, the first, uh, the first film is sensible to the second film is not sensible to those (laughs) same things. And by the way, literally blows up the entire organization with missiles in the first like half an hour of yeah but it comes it comes back uh in the form of the new uh scotch distillery right that um you know that that statesman buys so that there is actually not not only um not only uh, a bigger better uh kingsman not only a, a better non-state uh you know private uh intelligence and and security force uh paramilitary force but there is also synergistic monopolistic growth <laughs> right in the uh undemocratic apparatus of of um of surveillance and uh violence that uh that happens at, at the end of the movie and this is something that we're supposed to applaud uh because yeah, now mean, now channing tatum and halle berry are, are in the franchise yeah but at the same time pedro pascal's goal whiskey's goal is to advance this state of statesmen by being in league with the villains also 
so because he's also you also see the problem of it being a private business interest while also being an arbiter of life and death, because that's why Pedro Pascal betrays them and attempts to kill them because he wants the uh, drug dealers to be out of business so that the booze dealers can make all the money. Right. So, so there is a certain indictment of that way of living uh, that carries through. One interesting thing. I don't know if you guys caught this, but when but I thought it was interesting that the statesmen are based in Kentucky, which is part of this idea that they are a, an organization that is fraught. The statesmen are not like an allegory for anything good. They are a fraught organization that has good things about them and bad things about them. And they're based in Kentucky. And Pedro Pascal, the statesman who ends up betraying them, uh, his old Ford Bronco plays Dixie when you blow the horn. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, he's a self-interested rebel who is interested in using people as a means to make a lot of money. And, uh, and at the end... Jeff Bridges, the other Kentucky guy, gives a toast to – do you remember? What is what is the toast at the end of the Kingsman movie, of Kingsman the Golden Circle, that Jeff Bridges offers to all of the Kingsman and Statesmen? Uh, what are they toasting here, you? Here's this women with bow-legged women. <laughs> no. He toasts to the union. He says, to the union. And what he's referring to is the union between the statesmen and the kingsmen across the Atlantic right. Ocean. Right. But it's interesting that you have the bad guy statesmen who are associated with – Kentucky, of course, was a border state during the Civil War in which it was highly contentious what side you were going to be on. And so uh, it's interesting that the statesmen within them have both union representatives and Confederate representatives who take different sides in whether and to what degree people should be used as means to enrich the uh, the, the organization. Both of them are interested in enriching the organization. Neither the Union nor the Confederacy in the United States were interested in impoverishing themselves. The Union wanted growth to happen in a certain way and also valued people not being slaves <laughs> in a certain way, which I'm, I will unabashedly say is a good thing. Um, I'm, you know, that's I, I'll, t- I'll, I'll, I'll die on that hill. Yeah, you, you, know? take, like, you my, take that controversial position. <laughs> exactly. Is that like, yes, it might not be the only reason that the Union fought against the Confederacy, but it was one of them. Slavery is bad. And um, but that's not to say that the the union wasn't interested in money, and the Confederacy is also interested in money, and they might have also had personal stake in like defending their homes in much the same way Pedro Pascal had a personal stake in the death of his wife or his, his high school sweetheart, as he refers to her. But that doesn't mean he also isn't in favor of slavery <laughs> by like locking people up and and using their deaths and their suffering and their exploitation in order to enrich himself. Uh, you know, and and so it's it's interesting. I just felt like it was interesting when you're talking about how the statesmen aren't a good analog for America. I think it's because the statesmen aren't one thing; they're split up. They have a bunch of different things. Like the idea that at the end of the movie, the two white men are offered the promotion and they both turn it down so that the black woman who is more qualified and deserves it more gets it, and then the white man literally pulls out the table at the the chair at the head of the table so the black woman can sit in it and he can then like like sort of push her forward like that also is talking about a very specific sort of dynamic that is characteristic of uh, of problems and, and solutions in both uh western europe and the united states with regards to like post-colonialism and slavery and like diversity and inclusion what does it really mean and all this other stuff um it's all in there it's and it's a mishmash and I mean, it's not a mishmash but it's a it's a collage and pop poppy is part of it because she's also a part of america she went to harvard business school which is the least surprising piece of character development i've heard in a movie in a long time <laughs> <laughs> And, and actually, speaking of crass commercial business interests, can I also note that, that this movie had like one of the most short-lived 
auto endorsements, like auto brand endorsements, where at the beginning of the movie, three Jaguar F paces show up and like within half an hour are exploded with rocket launchers and then they never show up again in the movie. Except he does drive a vintage Jaguar at one point. But I just I just really appreciated that we were willing to go like that far with the Jaguars and then they don't show up in the movie again. And correct me, well actually me in the comments on the website if you saw other Jaguars other than I think it was an E-type that uh, that Eggsby was driving, uh, I'm just pronouncing his name differently every time. Right, driving later in the movie, but yeah, the three F bases. Well, oh. uh, th- this is, this is a, probably a good place to to close the book on <laughs> on uh, Exxon and his uh, <laughs> Exxon, the Exxon Valdez <laughs> and his yeah. uh, his his adventures. An interesting counterpoint to last week's. Um, uh, last week's podcast where Pete and I really talked about, uh, you know, pain, aging and meat, you know, and like the, <laughs> the way the ways in which the meat uh, resisteth the manners um, and uh, an interesting uh, thing to talk about uh, in the ways in which manners can make it the man. Um, if you would like to join the conversation, hey, uh, the, the show notes are on uh, are on the, the, you know, page for this this episode. Go to overthinking it. Click on this episode. And, and uh, you'll see a place where you can leave comments there. Also, on that homepage, by the way, is that Harry Potter video. Go ahead and go watch it. Share it with your your Harry Potter uh, Harry Potter fans and or you know '90s party rap fans. Uh, and, and I think it really can be appreciated by both audiences. <laughs> we'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably probably doesn't deserve You know, I was thinking for overthinking it, joining as an overthinking it member, we should require new members to throw an old member into a meat grinder. I think that really shows our commitment to the cause. <laughs> Sorry, it's that's just it's that's not great personnel management, is it? You you think that they they teach you a little bit better employee behavior practices at Harvard Business School? Jeez, poppy poppy, you have so much to learn. <laughs>